Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 12. Don't you just love robbing banks? I mean, don't you just love watching movies about robbing banks? Sorry, I don't know what that was. Uh, I love I love the movie where it's like the team of good guys is trying to get into the vault. You know, and they've got like all this stuff they have to defeat in order to get in there, right? You gotta of course get past the guards, but they're never hard. They you and they always miss. They they can't they can't seem to, you know, think straight. But then you gotta get through the fingerprint scanner and the retinal scanner and the pressure sensors on the floor. And then there's the thermal imaging cameras and the regular cameras. And then, of course, there's the thermometer in there. The temperature goes up and, you know, it's going to trigger the alarm. Of course, you've got to go through the ventilation ducts at some point, whether you need to or not, because that's just cool and that's what they do. I can see Tom Cruise suspended by a wire, right, over the floor, the pressure-sensitive floor. And he's, I don't remember what he's trying to steal. He's trying to get something steal something, take something. But while he's doing that and doing such a good job, this little bead of sweat begins to form and roll down his face, threatening to fall on this ravenous floor that's going to immediately trigger the alarm and he's going to be in trouble. If you want to take something out of a vault and you've got an opponent that wants you to not do that, you've got your work cut out for you. This is going to be a difficult thing to do. The passage before us this morning, Jesus, as it seems, has his work cut out for him. Because he's seeking to do this very thing. He's seeking to break in to a heavily defended, not just vault, but kingdom. The kingdom of the enemy, which holds lots of loot or plunder, and Christ is seeking to break in and bring the reign of God to bear in the middle of the satanic kingdom. And he's not going to leave without getting what he came for. We're going to be considering Matthew 12, verses 22 down through 37, uh, but I thought we would just begin by reading 22 through 30 together. So if you would, let's Look in our Bibles, Matthew 12, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw. And all people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by the eligible, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But... If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. 
and whoever does not gather with me scatters. God's word. So we are introduced to a man who is both blind and mute. As we're introduced to him, he cannot see us, for he's blind. He cannot communicate with us, for he is mute. He is, it seems to me, in a kind of solitary confinement. You know that worst of the worst kind of punishment they will do, putting somebody in solitary confinement, but his goes with him wherever he goes, stuck in a cage, isolated from people. And this is a result, it says, of demonic oppression. It's not just a medical malady. It is a malicious manifestation of the enemy. Now, thankfully, this situation doesn't last too long. In verse 22, we're introduced to this man being held hostage by the enemy, and way down in, well, verse yeah, 22, Jesus fixes everything in that same verse. simply says that the man was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And the people are amazed. Now, that concludes the action of the whole section that we're going to be considering this morning. This is what happened. The rest is Jesus' discussion of what just happened. Him explaining what this means and what's, what's going on. But before he talks, the Pharisees make sure to give their perspective on what's going on. This is not a good work being done to rescue someone from a demon. This is about Jesus acting under the power of a demon. He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. That's their accusation against him. He responds in verse 25. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. He's, he's talking about a kingdom divided against itself. That's a civil war, right? Civil wars happen. They, they, they come and they, they go. It's, it's it's not entirely uncommon in our world, but, but here is what is uncommon. That, that the government itself would, would ask for the civil war. The government would, would raise up in its own opposition to itself. That the government would work to undermine itself and to fight against itself. Such a thing is never heard of. Such a thing does not happen. It's always another force coming in to oppose the government that causes a civil war. That's that's how this works. And so Jesus is pointing out to them that their argument is illogical. What are you, what are you talking about? That, that there's a civil war in Satan's kingdom that he's ordered? He's ordered himself to be undermined? He's ordered his plans to be thwarted? He, he, he has ordered himself to be defeated. How, how can that be? Verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom Stand. Jesus' point is that Satan is evil, but he's not stupid. He's not going to work to undermine his own kingdom. He's working to advance his kingdom. He's, he's working to keep these people under his power and in his clutches. So that's, that's Jesus' first kind of pushback. Hey, what you're saying doesn't even make sense. It's illogical. And then in verse 27... 
says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So, Jesus isn't the only one, at the time, observing demonic activity and even opposing demonic activity. It was not uncommon to have others work to oppose demons and, and exercise demons. He says, I'm not the only one doing this. So be careful with the argument that you bring against me. Others are doing this too. Your followers, your servants, it's translated your sons. Are you sure you want to argue that casting out demons is done by demonic power? Because you might just prove more than you want to. Their argument becomes an embarrassment to themselves and to their followers. So having refuted the argument then, we're left with a question. If Jesus didn't do this by the power of Satan, how did he do it? Right? That's what's, that's what's being talked about. That's what's being debated. Now notice that no one is asking if he did it. Right? That's not the question, because there's a guy over there who can see, who's looking around, and who's talking about what he can see. There is no doubt that something just happened to him. So it's not a matter of if it happened, and it's not a matter of whether it takes power to do something like this. It takes power. This is a superhuman thing. Humans, on their own, have no authority over the demonic. Humans on their own cannot speak a word and cure blindness or cause someone else to be able to speak. This is, this is obvious, just how it is on earth. So how did he do this? Well, if it's not the power of man and it's not the power of Satan, there's only one option left, and it must be the power of God. Verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Christ saying, listen, you don't want to get to this conclusion, but here's the obvious conclusion. This just happened by the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit of God is at work in the kingdom of Satan, that means the kingdom of God is coming in to oppose the kingdom of Satan. That's what you are witnessing right here. The breaking in of the king's kingdom into the enemy's kingdom. The kingdom of God has come among you. God's rule is breaking in to this area that was previously owned by Satan. And now we get to our you know, mission impossible verse in verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. The, the, the strong man idea is, is, is the, the powerful one who's guarding his house. You want to go in and take something? You've got to start with him, Right? If you're going to do it in broad daylight, you know, we're not talking about sneaking it, we're talking about doing it in broad daylight, means you've got to deal with the power that's there. So how? How can Jesus so effortlessly plunder the enemy's camp? What happened to the alarm system? Where's the pressure-sensitive floor? Where are the guards? Where's the strong man? Is Satan even at home? In his kingdom? Perhaps he's sleeping on a journey. Maybe he's relieving himself. Where is he? There's no opposition. fact is, he is at home. He's just helpless. He's just helpless. Powerless to do anything to stop this. Permitted only to watch. 
as Jesus plunders him. Here's Jesus stealing from Satan, plundering the prince, looting Lucifer, burglary from Beelzebub. I'm not trying to rub it in. He's snatching from the snake, absconding from the accuser, embezzling from the evil one, not trying to rub it in. He does all that, and he makes it look easy. He just comes in and takes what he wants with no opposition whatsoever. Now, what did he come to do? What did he come for? Because our picture is only so good. This idea of coming to, you know, plunder the bank vault is only so good. It only gets us so far because we need to understand what exactly he's plundering. And verse 30 gives us a hint. Whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In this verse, Jesus is inviting us into the bank robbery. He's inviting us to be on his team and to be about doing what he's doing. If you're not with me, you're against me. If you're with me, then you're going to be gathering with me. All of a sudden, he uses this, this term that's less like a bank vault and more like agriculture. He's gathering. Sheaves that are ripe on the harvest. Sheep being brought into the sheep fold. See, the work of Christ is not just to, to break in and steal Satan's treasure. It's a rescue mission. It's a hostage rescue mission. He's coming in to free his people. That's his treasure. That's what he's after. That's what he's trying to do. This is, this is, uh, this is the SEAL team at work doing the hostage rescue. Special forces work, ranger work. It's shepherd's work is what it is. The shepherd going in and rescuing his lost sheep, setting them free from their torment in their cages. That's what this demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute represents. That's who he was. He was the enemy, and now he belongs to God. He has been set free by the power of Christ. Such is this man having been set free by Christ, and so it is for everyone who follows Christ. Might not have been oppressed by a demon in the same way, but if you're in the kingdom of God, it is because Jesus broke into the kingdom of darkness and rescued you out. Glory to God. All right, let's look at the rest of the passage together, and then we'll kind of tie it all together. So we had left off in verse 30. Let's pick up in verse 31 and we'll read down to verse 37. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks the word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. 
For by your words you will be condemned, justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This section looks at what is known as the unforgivable sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus had just been defending himself against the charge of working for Satan. And now in this section, he levels essentially the same charge against them. That they are, in fact, working for Satan and blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. He does this by giving this illustration of a tree. A tree is known by its fruit. Right? This is so obvious that sometimes we just kind of let it roll past. Think for a second. A tree is known by its fruit, not the other way around. Right? So you don't go and identify the tree and then based on that figure out what the fruit is. Works the other way. If you go to a tree and you see an apple on it, then it is an apple tree. That is how that works. You don't go to a tree, see an apple on it, and then say, but yeah, but what kind of tree is it? Because that, because it, it might be an orange tree. If it's an orange tree, then that's an orange. That doesn't happen that way, right? A tree is known by its fruit, but the Pharisees aren't applying that to Jesus. See, he's saying, I just revealed fruit for you. I just cast a demon out. I just rescued somebody from the clutches of the enemy. The blind can see, the mute can talk. That's called good fruit. What kind of tree do you think just made that fruit? But no, you judge me to be an evil tree. What you cannot see, you judge me to be an evil tree, and then you call my fruit evil despite all that you can see. There is a willful, purposeful hatred against God and his work. But then Jesus takes that example and uses it against them. I see your fruit. I know your reputation. You're the Pharisees. You're the most righteous people in the land. They were ne- they're not known like that for us, right? Because they get a bad, bad rap in the New Testament, right? But back then, they were known as the righteous ones. They were the law-keeping people. They were, they were those who seemed to be the most holy. That was their reputation. And Jesus says, I see right through it because I can see your fruit. The words which come out of your mouth, the words which come out of your mouth are blasphemous words. They are venomous and serpentine. They are evil words from an evil heart. The fruit that comes from you all the fruit that we can see reveals who you are. The heart is revealed by the words. It is, we can't see each other's hearts, but God can see the heart. We can't even see our own hearts. No. The heart is revealed by the fruit because you can know the tree by the fruit. In fact, it's such a good revealer of the tree that Jesus says, you're going you're to stand before God based on your words. So clearly does that connect back to the heart that God can just judge based on the word because it reveals what the heart really is and whether that heart loves God or not. So they use these evil words blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Let's look a little more deeply at those verses. Verse 31 again. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy 
will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So what exactly is this? What is, he, what is he talking about? What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, at first we can see just from looking at it that in one phrase he calls it the blasphemy against the Spirit and then in another speaking against the Holy Spirit. So there's this there's speaking against the work of the Spirit of God. It's But to bring the tree in, not just the words, the words are coming from somewhere, right? The, the essence of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not the words, but the heart that motivates those words, right? It, it's, it's the heart that is the uh, cesspool from which these words would, would flow. So the, so the issue here it is a heart issue, and it seems, based on the, the context and what they were just accusing Jesus of, that, that it involves seeing the work of the Holy Spirit clearly, and believing it to be evil. Calling it evil. Persisting in that belief. So, beyond that, I've seen several different opinions, I've heard several different opinions on what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit actually means. Some believe it's actually not a sin that can be committed today at all. That this was something that was only possible back when Jesus was here on earth, when he was doing such obvious miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit that people could could doubt that. That was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Don't worry, it can't happen today. I really like that. I understand the appeal of that line of thinking. Um, Yet, I'm struck by the fact that God saw fit to put it in our Bible. And if it's there, there must be a warning here for us, some way. So a common view of this is to equate blasphemy with the, uh, of the Holy Spirit with a decision to reject the work of the Holy Spirit, to, to, to harden your heart against Him, to resist the Spirit, to essentially refuse repentance when it is offered. And then, of course, if one refuses repentance one won't be forgiven. So in that sense, it becomes unforgivable. I think this view is very close, but I think it's lacking one one component to it, because hmm, which of us hasn't resisted the Holy Spirit at times? Which of us hasn't pushed back and, at least for a time, refused to repent, hardened our hearts to God? and then turned and repented and been forgiven. So, I, actually, I mean, I read a commentary that says, so if somebody turns from this, they can be forgiven. I just thought, then what does unforgivable mean? I don't understand. Clearly, it's, that to me is missing something in the nature of unforgivable. So here's what I believe this refers to. I believe it is a settled, persistent, unchanging opposition to the work of the Spirit under the belief that what he is calling you to do is evil. It's just satanic. This is not merely resisting the Holy Spirit for a time. It's not simply falling into sin for a season. It's not just steering the ship 
in the direction of unrepentance. It's, it's taking the rudder of the ship and lashing it in place and saying, that's the direction I'm going because it's the right direction and I'm going to hear nothing else about it. It's being happy that you've done so because you're that convinced that you're right. It's a convinced conviction that to repent would be evil. It's a hatred of that work of the Spirit. And for this sin, there is no forgiveness. Now, a word to those listening. This can be one of the more troubling passages in Scripture, especially for those of us that have a softer conscience, just naturally. But we said that the sin involves a certainty, a self-satisfaction. You can see it in the Pharisees. They, they believe in what they're doing. Con- a convinced conviction that the Holy Spirit is evil. Listen, if you are worried about this sin, you have not done this. By definition. There's a self-satisfied nature to this. There's a lash the rudder in place and stop thinking about the way the rudder is set. Because I know it's set right. If you're concerned about how you've been steering the ship, that's the work of the Spirit in you, making you concerned about how the rudder is set. So yield to Him. Respond to Him. Repent as He calls you to repent. That's how to identify the work of the Spirit in you. It's the one who's not worried about this. It's the one who who lives without concern for their sin, without any fear of God, with a settled, in fact, hatred for God as revealed in Scripture, who sees any talk of the need of repentance as evil, who is in the most dangerous water. Friends, I think Christ's warning here is meant to be sobering. It should be sobering. But I think there's something remarkably encouraging about this as well. Deeply encouraging. Consider with me, how many sins are there which are unpardonable in God's law? How many? Are there perhaps a thousand unpardonable sins? Make no mistake, there are a thousand possible sins that lead to death. The wages of any sin is death. There are thousands of ways to transgress against God, but not thousands of unpardonable sins. Perhaps there's hundreds. God in His holiness and righteousness would have perhaps a hundred unpardonable sins. No. Perhaps there's ten then. Maybe there are ten unpardonable sins that go with the great Ten Commandments that came down from Sinai. No. There's not even ten. Friends, there is but one. There is but one. And it is this hardening of yourself against the Holy Spirit in a perpetual way that says that He is evil. That's the one unforgivable sin. Which means we could make quite a list of those which are not unforgivable. Quite a list of which, unfortunately, we have been all too familiar. Because the name of the unforgivable sin is not anger, nor lust, nor greed, nor gossip. The name of the unforgivable sin is not murder or abuse or hatred. It's not despair. It's not suicide. It's not even blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ. 
How can it be? Even that, Christ says, will be forgiven. If the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit is the one who refuses to pursue repentance, and I believe that he or she is, then what that means is any sin for which you pursue repentance is forgivable. Any sin. Every sin. Every sin for which you pursue forgiveness may be forgiven. Friends, that means that as Christ invades the kingdom, as he breaks into the vault, as, as, he, as he tries to, to get in and, and get past the alarm system and the strong man, it means there is no cage in the enemy's stronghold too far in for Jesus to get to. There's no depth too deep that he can't reach. There's no impurity too dark that he can't cleanse. His work of plundering the strong man, it looks so easy in this passage. Doesn't it? We see it here. He tells us what he's doing. This is why he came to earth. It didn't stay this easy for him. Not at all. We see him here telling us what he's doing. This is, this is a piece of his mission of plundering the strong man. It, it, it's here in this passage. It doesn't end in this passage. This is what took him, led him, drove him to the cross. This is where he did battle on our behalf. This is where he went up against the strong man in the strength of a lamb. This is where he stooped. I mean low. How low. And waded into the pool of human filth. Was baptized in our depravity. Those are hard words to put together. Coated in our sin and our shame. He was clothed in our iniquity. He bore our sins. He bore everyone. He reached down to make sure he bore everyone. The lowest of lows, the darkest of corners, the foulest of words, the vilest of thoughts. And he took them all on himself. And he who knew no sin became sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that we could be set free from the cage from the enemy's kingdom. It was at the cross that he completed the hostage rescue mission where he bound the strong man permanently and forever and put the principalities and powers to open shame in what he did. That's where he stole from the snake. Plundered the prince. And I think the application this morning is worship. Worshiping the one who came for us. Worshiping the Lamb that was slain. Let us worship Him. Church, worship Christ. Worship Him. Stand in awe of who He is. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. For by His blood, He ransomed for God a people from every tribe and tongue, people and nation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. For by it, He defeated His enemies. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. But when He ascended, he led a host of captives with him. 
rescued hostages. Can't get away, though, without noticing the work of the Holy Spirit in this passage. The Holy Spirit so pictures the humility of God. You recognize His work is always, always glorifying another person, the Trinity. He is the spotlight of the Trinity that forever focuses upon Christ. And there's Christ, the name above every, oops, the name above every name. There's Christ with the name above every name, and yet He's pointing to the Father. At the point of a spotlight, you never look at the spotlight. You look what it's shining on. That's the work of the Spirit. I think that has something to do, by the way, with why that sin is unforgivable. Something of the jealousy of God for His glory. That the one person of the Trinity who never, ever is in the spotlight is the one that God just says, No, don't speak against Him. But so far from speaking against him, may we not praise him? Is he not worthy of praise? Christ bore our sin on the cross. Do you know that the Holy Spirit bears with your sin? Like he's the one that lives in us. He is there when we sin. He is grieved when we sin. Convicts us when we sin mediates Christ's presence to us in our repentance, calls us to holiness, transforms our heart. He's the one that first brought us to new life, revealed Christ to us in his glory. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. Oh, blessed Spirit of God. And I think part of that application here is just gratitude and praise to the third person of the Trinity who is fully God and fully worthy of all of our worship. And yet, even as I say that, I would say that I think it pleases the Spirit most if we end talking about Jesus because that's what He wants. He wants us to highlight, He wants to highlight Christ. So friends, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is the Lamb. And as we worship Christ, may that please the Spirit. May He be honored as we worship Jesus to the glory of God. So to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son on this rescue mission. We know this is according to your plan and your good pleasure for you to love the world that you sent your only Son. Jesus, thank you for coming in to our world, for breaking in, for, for rescuing this man in, in whom we can all see our own face. Not just breaking in in power, but breaking in in weakness and suffering on our behalf. 
Spirit, thank you for making these truths precious to us. Would you be honored to work among us as we exalt Christ to the glory of God the Father? Pray for your work right now as we sing. This will be more than songs from our lips, but as trees bringing forth the good treasure within them. Be worshipped from our hearts, we pray. Christ's name. Amen. Let's 